What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, we have another Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. I'm going to get through about, I wrote about 10 of these down, and we'll see how long that takes. Something like a half hour. You guys know the drill. So without further ado, let's get into the first question. It's from Susie Petropoulos, and she asks, what is your approach when clients say they're being adherent, but you know they are not? And so this is going to happen to every coach. At some point, you're going to have a, a client who is, you know, usually the the situation that comes to mind for me is somebody who says they're eating a certain number of calories and this just does not mathematically even in a as a long shot match up with what science would expect maybe there you know you have somebody who's 200 pounds and they're eating 1200 calories and they're not losing weight and it's like well you know that that's not actually it's not possible it's literally not physiologically possible for someone who's let's say 200 pounds to be eating 1200 and not losing weight and so you you know something's up here right this person's swearing up and down that they are eating what they say they're eating but you know physiologically something is going you know uh, that's not possible and, and that something else is going on here and this isn't actually what's happening and the two things that come to mind for me is actually something I've learned uh, this phrase in therapy actually is like to come at this with curiosity. Uh, I would add come at it with curiosity and compassion or compassionate curiosity if we were going to coin that term. And the idea being that you you know that something is uh, not right here, that that this isn't actually what's happening, right? You're not actually eating this much. And so you want to come at it with curiosity, sort of like a detective would. And this is kind of how I frame it with a client. It's like, hey, we, you know, this isn't like me attacking you. I'm not calling you a liar. What I want to do is I want together to be detectives and figure out why there is some disconnect between, you know, what you say you're eating, let's say, or what you think you're eating or what you're tracking and what might actually be happening. And then I would also, again, in the in the, in the the name of uh, compassion, discuss that most people are off when they track. This isn't like a, they have a problem that's only their problem that doesn't affect anyone else. Like everybody's not tracking and eating exactly what they say they're eating or not everybody's eating exactly what they are tracking. There's always going to be variation and a bit of a disconnect there. And so come at it with curiosity. Say, hey, listen. You know, and, and one more thing I might add is just that sometimes being a little bit direct, again, from this compassionate curiosity, being a little bit direct can be helpful. Sometimes people appreciate you being the person who's telling them straight, right? Telling them how it is. I'm not saying be like, yo, motherfucker, you're just not eating this much. Like you're lying or you're wrong. You know, people don't respond really well to being attacked. But if you're being compassionate and genuine and coming from a place of really wanting to help people, sometimes some amount of being direct can be helpful. Maybe you're the person in their life who's finally going to tell them this is not your metabolism is not broken. You know, it's not your hormones. It's just that you're not tracking accurately seven days a week enough that we can, you know, really make good deductions with this. So I would come at it from curiosity, compassionate curiosity, a state of, hey, let's figure out why this is going on as a team, as a unit. That's what I'm here for as your coach. Let's figure this out once and for all. You know, more of like a let's figure this out mentality than a, you know, you're really fucking up and this isn't, you're not really doing what you say you're doing and, you know, you're lying to me and you're letting me down. None of that, obviously. I mean, hope that that goes without saying, but in case it doesn't. Next question is from Katie May Main. She asks, uh, she says, work life, work slash life stress is crazy. No time to focus on nutrition. My lifts are regressing and my systemic recovery is shot. My sleep is fine. What should I be prioritizing since time is limited? Well, I have a couple of follow-up questions, so maybe just painting contextual picture here is helpful. I'm not sure what you mean by what what should you be prioritizing in terms of nutrition because you said no time to focus on nutrition. Um, you should be prioritizing the same stuff you always prioritize, but you're going to have to do it in a different way because time is limited. Like you should pr- be prioritizing nutritious foods, protein, and fiber, 
and enough calories, not too many, not, a, you know, the right amount of calories for whatever your goal is. Now, I would say you should be prioritizing things that are easy to make and are portable and can be consumed with the lifestyle constraints that you have. I was a personal trainer for 10 years and I used to eat meals in the closet in the like 60 seconds between sessions and I would shovel down one bite of food and I, it took me a while to realize that that wasn't really a good strategy. My time was limited. I knew I wanted to have, you know, two or three meals during this eight hour period where I was working back to back to back sessions. And so for me, eating a big meal before work, a big meal after work and having shakes throughout the day was something that, again, for me, prioritizing this like ease of consumption was most important. Like lowering the standard of what a meal needed to be was something that was very important for me. So from a nutrition standpoint, I would prioritize lowering your standards of what a meal needs to be and maybe just leaning more heavily on shakes. And I don't just mean like pre-made shakes. I mean, making a shake that is more of like a meal replacement, let's say with berries or oats or low peanut butter or something that isn't just protein and water. Not that that doesn't have a place to, it totally does. But if you're using it as a meal, then you, you have the opportunity to make it more of a meal with more nutrients and fiber and keep you full for a bit longer. When it comes to training, I'm, I'm not alarmed that your lifts are regress. I'm not alarmed that your lifts are regressing. I'm, I'm curious why your lifts are regressing, especially if sleep is fine. You know, if work and life stress are crazy and it's not affecting sleep, that seems like it, it is not odd in a good way. I don't mean odd like in an attacking you way. I mean, that that's good. I'm, I'm happy your sleep is good. It'd be worse if it was bad. Um, if lifts are regressing, man, if this is something that's gonna clear itself up, you're going through a breakup, or you got, you know, laid off or you're just going through like this, like, hey, for this, this month at work, it's crazy. Prioritize getting close to failure, not worrying so much about the numerical progression, eating enough protein and getting back to your regularly scheduled programming when you can. Um, yeah, from a training perspective, that would be what I would focus on. I also would decrease the, like the lower your standards a little bit of what a workout has to be, right? It doesn't necessarily maybe need to be exactly what you have programmed. Maybe you only have 30 minutes where you normally need 60 minutes. And maybe you're gonna pick, you know, the, the biggest stimulative, the most stimulative movements on that day and you're gonna do those. And maybe you go closer to failure than you normally would because you know you're not gonna be doing as much volume over this period of time. So hopefully that helps, Katie. Next question is from Mohit. And Mohit asks, does stretching and postural corrective X do stretching, does stretching, and do postural corrective exercises work? And I'm assuming you, you mean work for improving posture. There isn't a lot of good research. In fact, there's plenty of research that says the answer is no. What I would say is it's not, getting stronger in general might, might help maybe, but I think honestly, when it comes to posture, it's mostly from a being cognizant cognizant of it, being aware, and not sitting for eight hours a day, making sure you're moving throughout the day. This isn't a scenario where, you do a lot of rear delt exercises and then all of a sudden you stand up straighter. Like you stand up straighter because you're reminding yourself to stand up straighter and because you're standing and sitting and walking and moving and not sitting down in a chair for eight straight hours slunched over on a keyboard, right? And so this like postural corrective work is mostly bogus, mostly bullshit, mostly marketing. It's not a bad idea to be strong, but I think if you're like, hey, I'm doing this exercise for my posture, like you've most likely been sold down the river. Like most likely that's not a thing. Um, the best thing you can do for your posture is be more cognizant of it. And when you're sitting at a desk, adopt a good posture and try and focus on it a little bit more, you know, whatever S stupid things like I say stupid, but like little things like setting a timer or like keeping a notepad there and just reminding yourself, hey, let me invest in a good chair that lets me sit in this position that, that works or making sure my desk height is at a good height so that I'm not slouched over, making sure the monitor height is at a good, uh, a good height at eye level, right? 
Those sorts of things and just being generally more cognizant is your best bet if you want to correct or improve posture. Also, also I would need to say, and I probably should have started this, not everybody's posture is going to be the same. There's a big genetic component here, big bone structure, and just the way that we are built that's going to decide at least a baseline amount of like what our posture looks like. And so good posture is like this weird nebulous universal term as if like standing up straight with your shoulders pinned back is good posture. That's that's like a weirdly nondescript definition of the word good. Um, and so if you want to stand up straighter, stand up straighter and think about it more and be more cognizant of it. Does that make that good? Depends what good means. Are you healthier this way? You're going to have less pain at some point in your life. I don't think there's any research to support that, frankly. Next question is from Fit Friends, and he or she asks, if alcohol is like the fourth macro, if your surplus would only come from it, would you still make gains? So for, yeah, so alcohol is the fourth macro in air quotes, like because it's not technically uh, protein, fat, or carbohydrates metabolized differently. Basically, it's just a toxin that your body deals with first to metabolize and get out of the system ASAP. Uh, about seven calories a gram, where protein and carbs are four calories a gram, fat is seven calories a gram. But to be honest with you, you never need to think about what I just said fucking ever. You don't need to ever think about alcohol being the fourth macro. You don't need to think about it being seven calories a gram. That's not something you should ever, ever, literally ever think about. You just think about alcohol more so in the sense of like it's non-satiating, low-protein calories that you are drinking, liquid calories that also gives you a buzz that makes you want to eat cheese fries. So uh, that's more so how I would consider alcohol. But in the context of this question, if your surplus only comes from alcohol, do you still make gains? Now, let me be very, like, this is like a common thing. It's like your your surplus, it's not like your um, surplus is going to come from one thing. Imagine every bite of food that you eat just instantaneously being shot into your stomach. Imagine that happened. You just instantaneously, you had all the food in your stomach all at once. Now, if that amount is a surplus, it's not just coming from one thing, right? If you mix in a bowl, you mix Diet Coke and lemonade and and uh, uh, water and coffee and you mix it up and you pour it into a glass until the glass overflows. And I ask you, what was the, which drink was the thing that caused it to overflow? You'd, you'd say all of it because it's a combination of all of it. It's a combination of all of it that caused it to overflow. And so I would rephrase this as, if I'm in a surplus and I'm having some alcohol, can I still make gains? The answer is absolutely yes. You're not like, it's not like your body is, getting itself to maintenance with just the food calories that you eat. And then the, the your body's like, well, we, uh, we, what do we have left over for muscle gain? Oh, we just have that alcohol. No, it's all being mixed into the same bucket. And then your body's using some of that, those extra surplus calories for muscle growth. Now, will you make better gains not drinking alcohol? Just technically the answer is probably, it, it, technically the answer is yes, but there is probably a threshold of alcohol intake that is negligible and benign. Uh, I can't really say exactly where that is. It's not like, oh, you have seven drinks and that then it affects muscle growth. It probably affects muscle growth all the time, but at some point it, it, to some threshold, it's probably indistinguishable. Um, I have a podcast with Danny Matranga that I will link with alcohol, everything that you guys want to know about alcohol. It answers this question of like, where might we set some of these thresholds? But I don't want to say here, um, God forbid that that is different than what I said in the other podcast. Uh um, yep. Yeah, so your surplus comes from everything. And so if you, if you asked me the question, Hey Jordan, if I drink some alcohol, but I'm in a surplus, do I make gains? The answer is absolutely yes. Um, hundred percent. Cool. Melissa Hutchins asks best deadlift type for mid forties. Women is the Smith machine safer. I'll say a couple of things here. The type of deadlift, or in this context, the type of hinge movement that you perform has fuck all literally nothing to do with your age or your gender. 
and the Smith machine is not safer. I'm not saying the Smith machine is bad. I'm just saying there's no there's no reason where you're like, ooh, you know, I shouldn't be using a barbell. I should really use the Smith machine because it's safer. It is not true. It is not safer. Um, I frankly wouldn't use the Smith machine unless you have to. Let's say you're at Planet Fitness, but even at Planet Fitness, I would go for dumbbells first. Um, so as a woman in your mid, as a woman in your mid forties, that does not change. You could be fucking deadlifting from the floor, super strong, super powerful. Like what sort of hinge movement you should do is based on your goals, your training experience, um, and you know what that actual exercise will look like is very particular to you. What sort of range of motion um, capabilities do you have? What's your active range at the hip and the glutes and the hamstrings, the low back? And so I really don't think that it's a type of deadlift that matters. And I don't think it has anything to do with your age or your gender. I think what sort of hinge movement you do has to do with your goals and what that hinge movement will look like has to do with your anthropometry, your mobility, your current training age, what you're, what you're um, comfortable doing. And so that is, if you were a client, you came to me like, hey, I'm 43 and I'm a woman, what sort of deadlift should I do? I'd be like, okay, what are your goals? You're like, okay, hypertrophy. All right, maybe you want to do an RDL. And they're like, okay, well, how low should I go in my RDL? And it's like, well, that doesn't have anything to do with your age or gender. It has to do with you and your current mobility and what your strength levels are like at certain ranges of motion. And so it's a very end of one circumstance, a very individualized question and really doesn't have anything to do with your age or your gender, to be honest. Um, I, I definitely want to reiterate the point, like you could be doing just regular conventional deadlifts super strong from the floor until you're 90. That, you know, there wouldn't be anything alarming about that outside of things that don't have to do with you being 90. Like that's not a good range of motion for you or your technique sucks and just general things that would apply to everybody. Next question is from JM Duncan. He or she asks, how frequently do you recalibrate your macros if you are maintaining long-term? I read this question and I just thought to myself, never. I mean, if you are maintaining and you're feeling good, like why create a problem that that doesn't exist, right? Like how often do I recalibrate your macros if you're maintaining long-term? Dude, if you're maintaining long-term and you feel good and your lifestyle is good and everything's good, like what are you recalibrating for? Like you would have to have a reason to recalibrate. Is your recalibrating based on you not enjoying what you're currently doing or your biofeedback is bad, like your sleep sucks and you're super hungry all the time? Like you'd have to have an actual reason to recalibrate. If you're maintaining long-term and you feel great, then I don't really know what the reason would be to recalibrate them. So I'm missing a piece of context here, but maybe if you're in a position where you've been maintaining for a while at a certain at certain macros, I would ask you, how are you feeling? If you're like, well, I feel good. I'm like, well, how's your life? You're like, well, it's good. I could live like this. I, I feel good. Good energy lifts are good. You know, my sleep is good. Biofeedback's good. I wouldn't change anything. And if one of those was off, that doesn't immediately mean we recalibrate your macros or in this context, I would more so rephrase that to like increasing or decreasing calories. Um, it means that we do a deep dive on all the reasons that whatever that context of biofeedback that is not going well. We go over the reasons and the inputs that affect that thing, which again, one of them might be calories. Next question is from Teresa Roggs. Teresa Roggs. And she asks, if goals are hypertrophy and athletics, can we superset plyometrics with our hypertrophy work? Um, you can. I, I wouldn't though. And, and I wouldn't very strongly. I wouldn't. Um you will get less out of both. If your goal is athletics and your goal is to train power, right? Power, speed, uh, you know, a rate of force development, these sorts of things that translate to athleticism, I would not train them in a state of fatigue. And that's why not to shit on CrossFit, but like doing a million, well, I guess it's tricky. If you wanted to learn to jump higher, you wouldn't be doing jumping under high states of fatigue. You wanna train power under low states of fatigue. 
Um, that doesn't mean it's the end of the world. It doesn't mean it doesn't help, but power training, training for speed and force development and athleticism probably should be done first in the session. That's again, that's not a blanket statement, but it is a decent rule of thumb. And in general, very generally speaking, if you have two different goals with your training, one is athleticism, one is hypertrophy, or maybe you have strength and hypertrophy or endurance and hypertrophy. I would not say, oh, I have these two goals. Let me mix them into the same fucking superset, right? I would at least put them at two portions of the same workout. And beyond that, I would rather you do them on two separate days. And beyond that, I would rather you have a periodized program where you work primarily on one of them for a period of time and then you put the other one on maintenance and then you work primarily on the other one, put the other one on maintenance. And that would depend on the season's of fitness that you're in, let's say you are an athlete and you are in season, then maybe you are going to, you know, have actually in season, you're probably going to be most of those things on maintenance. But as you get further away from your season, you might work more on hypertrophy and strength. And as you get closer to the season, you might work more on sports specific power stuff, um, then taper that down into the season. And so I would not superset plyos with hypertrophy work. Your hypertrophy work will suffer and your plyometric work will suffer. Your plyos will just turn into cardio um, if your goal is athleticism, don't randomly sprinkle in box jumps somewhere. Have a program that's designed for specific, you know, outcomes in terms of athleticism and then program it a bit more intelligently where it's has its own block of time where you're focused on that in the context that would work well for that thing, which again, in terms of athleticism or explosiveness or power, probably going to be done earlier in the session under a lower state of fatigue. If you're doing cleans, if you're doing med ball throws, stuff like that, um, box jumps is kind of are fucking dumb in all contexts. I don't, I'm picking on, you didn't say box jumps. I'm just imagining box jumps. Um, box jumps are basically not great idea, full stop. Um, I'm gonna get some hate on that, but there's really no reason to be doing box jumps probably ever. If you wanna work on your box, your jump height, you don't need to be like landing on top of a box, let's say. You certainly don't need to be testing yourself with how high you can jump on something, nor do you need to be doing 50 box jumps to fatigue. None of that's probably really good for athleticism, especially the last one. Alrighty. Uh, next words from Stuart Pine. Stuart asks, is there any credibility to training fasted burns more fat? Yes, this is 100% true. If you train fasted, you burn more fat, 100%. You burn more fat because you have less readily available carbohydrate for fuel. And so your body's like, well, I don't have as much carbohydrate for fuel because I'm training fasted. And so what I'm gonna use, I'm going to use fat as the fuel for this movement primarily, or a higher percentage or a higher ratio of fat to carbs or uh, than if you were fed, let's say. And so training fasted burns more fat, 100%. Your body will choose fat as its fuel source more, uh, more so than if you were fed. The problem is what I just said has fucking nothing to do with body fat loss. Body fat loss is not about which substrate your body is using for fuel. It doesn't matter what the fuel source is. It matters how many calories. It matters on the difference between fat storage and fat burning. It matters the difference of energy balance. Are you in a calorie surplus? Are you in a calorie deficit? It doesn't have to do with whether or not you burned you know, fat or carbohydrates. So what matters is that the gas tank is either empty or full. It doesn't matter what you put in the gas tank or what your gas tank, what you, you know, you, this fucking supercar analogy, but like it doesn't matter which fuel source you're using, it matters how many calories you burn. So you might burn more fat for fuel in that exercise, but that doesn't tell me anything about your body fat gain or loss status, because that's gonna come down to energy balance, which is gonna come down to calories in and calories out, not the fuel that you burned. Um, a lot of advocates of like a ketogenic low carb approach will tell you that you burn way more fat when you eat low carb. You burn way more fat because you eat way more fat. 
you also store more fat because you eat more fat. And it is the difference between the, the fat that is stored and the fat that is burned that will decide if you gain or lose body fat. And so when you eat more fat, you burn more fat, but you also store more fat. And what we're looking for is a net balance between those two things. Next question is from Lori, Lori, Laura, Lori, Laura, one of those two. And she asks, gym partner, not reliable. So I work out in the AM. If she comes through in the PM, is there any negatives to working out again? Should I go easier? Um, and I, I answered this in a Q&A on my Instagram, but I really wanted to go just a smidge more in depth and give a little bit more context. Um, the truth is I read this question. And I just thought to myself, listen, if you don't take your training that seriously, which by the way is fine. There's no, not, most people can, most people should have, ah, whatever, a little rant. Most people should be relatively, uh, should be most concerned with trying to be healthy and, and use exercise for its health benefits. And the truth is you don't need to tra take your training super duper seriously to get a lot of health benefits from exercise. Um, you definitely need to take your training more seriously if you have more ambitious goals in terms of seeing physique change, you know, building upon strength, and obviously more so as you get more of those things, as you get more jacked and more strong, you need to be more dedicated and more specific and more focused on progression. But if you're somebody who just goes in, kind of just has a good time, you're messing around. I don't mean messing around like maybe you're not training hard, but I mean, you're just doing kind of random stuff. You're not following a program. You're not super focused on progressive overload. Um, and you're, you know, in this context would be, uh, would more highly prioritize the social aspect of what's going on where your friends coming to the gym. You guys want to spend some time together. I don't think there's a huge downside. Obviously there's a, there is only so much training that you can recover from. And so if you're not recovering well, and then you're just doing a random two a day, not a good idea. And if you are training, you're taking your training seriously, then I think this is just a totally very like taking your training seriously is one of the big things that I would say, you know, constitutes what taking your training, what this means to take your training seriously is to have some structures, to have a structure that you were on, a plan that you were on, a progression model that you're shooting for. And it is the, the, the antithesis of that is just throwing in a random two a day with your friend. And so I'm not saying it's the end of the world, but I am saying that like, okay, if you're training, taking your training seriously, you're on a plan, this is just a random deviation from that plan. And I would see that as like, okay, the downside is going to be in direct correlation with how hard you train with your friend and how much that interferes with the plan that you're on. Um, and so if you went with your friend and everything was a five or six RIR and you just kind of went through the motions and got some blood moving, I don't think a big deal. If you go and work out again hard, randomly doing random stuff with your friend when you're supposed to be on a specific program, yeah, it'll interfere with that most likely. And does that matter to you is only a question that you can answer. If you're taking super seriously, you want to focus on your progression week to week, and that's something you're really like trying to get your teeth sunk into, then yeah, this is not a great idea. And it's a not a great idea to go hard. If you went with your friend and everything was five, six, seven RIR, and you were going through the motions and you just wanted to be with that person so that maybe that, you know, they were more motivated to go, et cetera. I'm, I love that. It's awesome. Just the more dedicated you are to your current program, the less hard I would train doing this thing. Next question, last question is from, hi Terry, from Run Pose Lift. And she said, any thoughts on the Brett Contreras versus Coach Kaz at N1 drama? Um, yeah, so on the drama side of things, maybe I haven't been following too, too closely. I try not to get too hung up on this. I will say that I 
think there are more and less respectful ways to get your point across and there are more and less respectful ways to conduct yourself on social media and more and less respectful ways to deal with somebody who you disagree with. And so if I'm if I've missed some of those moments where people acted in a way that I don't find to be the most respectful way to go about doing those things, then I, that means something to me. I just maybe haven't caught on to it. So if there's something that I'm missing that somebody was super rude or intentionally, you know, um, mischaracterized somebody's argument, then that's on me and, or, or, or I don't know about that. So for a second, we'll just kind of put aside the drama. For those of you guys that don't know, recently Brett Contreras and Coach Kaz were on the Revive Stronger podcast and they were talking all things glutes. Um, and the first two out of three podcasts are out. And, and to be honest, I don't care too much about the drama. Again, I said that, but um, I care more about the discussion that was had, the disagreements that are had, the claims that were made. And so I think two of the big ones were, I guess the three of the big ones were, do glutes grow better in the short position or do they at least grow better than we think in the short position? Um, is the seated abduction good for glutes and what makes a good exercise? Um what I will say also is Kaz, I thought, did a really good job doing what Mike Isra, Dr. Mike Isertel usually does, which was he didn't, he didn't, he acted really respectfully and he didn't get to talk as much. Um, this was clearly an opportunity for Brett to come on and, and talk about his agenda. And I don't mean that in a condescending way, but Brett did most of the talking. Um, and so I respect that Kaz was there respectfully and um, allowed Brett to get his point across and didn't interrupt him as per... Uh, Brett did a million times and Brett was honestly not particularly enjoyable to listen to. He's struck me as like a little bit like super defensive and, uh, and not somebody who was there for a really intellectual discussion. Although some of the points he made were thought provoking and I appreciate that to be honest. Some of them were definitely thought provoking. Some of the mechanistic stuff is a little bit over my head. Um, some of the Titan and some of the Sarkomir and the Z line stuff was a little bit over my head, but again, I'm learning just like some of you guys. Direct, to, to address some of the questions that were asked, do glutes, do glutes grow better in the short position or at least better than we think? I think Brett made some interesting points. I don't think that it is enough to overturn the bulk of the research that says that that uh, challenging a muscle in a more lengthened position to stretch under load is probably more hypertrophic head-to-head -head than working it in its short position. Um, but some interesting stuff, and honestly, I think Brett and Kaz would both agree we don't have enough, enough research to say definitively either way. I think Brett is really, 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 his entire life is made around glute work and particularly his, you know, his self-proclaimed invention of the hip thrust. And so it makes sense for him to, if sitting on one side of the fence, it makes sense for him to sit on the side of the fence that believes short position work is better because the hip thrust is primarily a short position exercise. Um, so I don't think the glutes grow better in the short position. I think that it was in, there were some interesting arguments made, and maybe there is some leverage stuff that means that the glutes maybe work better in the short position than other exercise than other muscle groups in the short position. Um, but I have not seen compelling enough research to overturn and say that the you know that the glutes are going to work better in a short position. I. I I do not, by a long shot, do not think that. Um, the second part of, you know, is is the seated abduction machine good for glutes? The answer is always in what context, for what goal, and compared to what? And I think if you had all the options in the world, the seated hip abduction is not a good exercise for the glute max. It's not the best exercise of glute max. It's not in the top five, might not be in the top 10. And so since you always have other options, then maybe I would never get to doing a seated glute, uh, seated hip abduction. And I do think that the introduction of a, uh, the piriformis as a primary line of pull or having a better line of pull is super relevant and doesn't really super well match up with the line of pull for the glute max. 
Uh, and if you want to work the glute max, I think you have so many better options that because the, if, even if you disagree that working the piriformis is a good or a bad thing, you just have better, more robust, more, more robustly stimulative exercises for the glute max. And so it wouldn't be something that I would program very often, even if just for a potential downside, I think we have other exercises that I would program first. Um, and I also think there's something to be said about like, there is some, some, not to tangent too hard, but there's some correlation. I mean, Brett's, one of Brett's comments was that you can do so much more volume with some of these short position movements because they damage the muscle less, let's say. I think that there's also something to be said there about like, why am I, why am I, why is it so easy to recover from this? Well, it must be less stimulative. There's no way that like a glute bridge is more stimulative than a back squat, let's say, if, you know, I can do so much more of it without getting sore. I just think that there's some loose, even loose correlation there. So, um, I also thought that their discussion of what makes a good exercise was laughable. I think Brett's answer gave me a headache. And I think the answer of what makes a good exercise is dependent on the goal. What is the goal compared to what, in what context and for what goal are the things that we need to ask first when deciding what a good exercise is. Um, yeah, um, I think they're both smart dudes. Brett obviously has been studying the glutes his entire life. Um, one of the big ironies that I felt, to be honest, that I literally could not stop laughing about is... Brett's, one of Brett's agendas is that the short position for the glutes is super duper important and maybe more important than the length in position, let's say. I don't know how exactly how far he would go with that, but let's say he's just trying to, to emphasize the, the benefits and the importance of training the glutes in the short position. Coach Kaz literally took your exercise that you invented, it's called a hip thrust. I don't know if you invented it or not, but you claim to have invented it, which I'm cool with. I don't actually give a shit about any of that. But let's say Brett invented the hip thrust, which is a short position hip extension exercise that trains the glutes. Kaz took your hip thrust and made it a better exercise for the glutes in the short position. And it's called a Kaz glute bridge. And the irony was like, you're trying to convince this guy who literally took your exercise and made it better for the glutes in the short position, that the short position, that the short position of the glutes is important. And again, another irony is I, you know, I'm certified through N1 and I know coach Kaz and the guys at N1 preach the importance of training the short position more than other coaches. Now, whether that's for metabolic effects or orthopedic benefits, they are advocates of training the short position more than most coaches, I'd say. Um, and I just thought that that was ironic, you know, preaching to a guy who uh, also preaches the importance of training the short position probably more than other people and took your like entire livelihood in terms of like your uh, claim to fame of the hip thrust and turned it into a better exercise for the short position, which I just thought was funny. Um, yeah. All right, guys, thanks for listening. I'll see you guys in the next episode. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.